So Psalm 62, <clears throat> it was written by David, this much we know. But for the occasion, there's a debate as for why David was writing this psalm. It's a mystery. Some scholars believe that David wrote this with either when he was being pursued by King Saul. This was a man that he once trusted and respected and now wanted him dead more than anything. Or he could have wrote it when he was running from Absalom, his son, his own flesh and blood. With either case, David's life was in jeopardy. His situation was grim, and fear and sorrow were trying to take over. Pastor Tim had mentioned early on in the beginning of the psalm series that it's very difficult, I think, for us in most cases to really appreciate the psalms because we haven't had these things happen to us for the most part. We haven't been pursued for someone to take our life. We haven't had one of our children that we loved try to take our life. And so most of us haven't been put in a position where it makes us realize that we need God more than we think we do. But David was no stranger to these things. But what's wonderful is when we do face, if we do face things in our life that put us close like this, we have a God that we can cry out to and he hears and he's there for us. So you'll notice that with many versions of the Bible, the top under the psalm, it says, under the titling, we see the words to the chief musician, Jebuthun, a song of David. Who is Jebuthun? And why is this important? We know that the chief musician isn't always mentioned. In fact, it very rarely is. So why is it mentioned here? Jebuthun, that's, that's mentioned here, is also listed in Psalm 39, Psalm 37, or sorry, 77. He was one of the musicians appointed by David where he was responsible to lead public worship with the people of Israel. And for a matter of reference, I encourage you to read 1 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 41, and 25, verses 1 through 3, just for some added context, for some more information around who Jebuthun is and what the role he had. But in 1 Chronicles 16, 42, it says that with him, Haman and Jebuthun, to sound aloud with trumpets and cymbals and the musical instruments of God. Now the sons of Jebuthun were gatekeepers. Gatekeepers. Also referred to as doorkeepers quite often. In Psalm 84, verse 10, it says, For a day in the courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. So remember the gatekeepers mentioned in the Old Testament, who they were. It was of the, Le the, Le the Levitical line, and they were men stationed at the gates of God's house. It was their duty to open the temple gates in the morning and to make sure they were closed at night. 
They stood ready to receive the tithes and the gifts that the Israelites brought. And they stood as a kind of security over the storerooms and the treasuries to make sure that nothing was stolen. They also stood as guards by the doors to make sure that no unclean people were to enter God's house. Their job, really, if you think about it, was to stand and wait. Many hours on end, day and night. What if this was our job, to stand and to wait? Not the most prestigious, but one certainly that is a trusted position, humbling, but obviously these people you could trust because you look what their job description is. To stand and to wait. John Milton said, they also serve who only stand and wait. And the psalmist tells us that there's no place he'd rather be. So think about that for a second. You see this picture of this servant whose job it is to stand and wait. And in this case, there's no better place to be than to stand and wait on the Lord. And that's in fact where David is when he starts his psalm. He's waiting on the Lord. So let's read this psalm together. Truly my soul silently waits for God. For him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you. Like a leaning wall and a tottering fence, they only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they were weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, Twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your servant David, the, Lord, the, the life, Lord, that he lived. We see an example in him, Lord, and we just pray that you would now use this psalm Lord, your word to penetrate our hearts and to open our eyes to see what you have for us this evening. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen. All right. So let's start looking at these verses. And when we do, we can kind of break them down into three different areas. Verses 1 through 4 really talks about God saving. Verses 5 through 8, God encourages. In verses 9 through 12, God rewards. So when we kind of split these out, we'll look at them that way. So the first, God saves. The first verse, truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. Let's be honest with ourselves. It is very difficult for us to wait on the Lord and to sit silently before him. Nearly impossible, in fact. Why is that? Why is it difficult for us, this first verse, to wait on the Lord? I don't have an answer. I know my reasons, your reasons are probably similar. Lack of trust, maybe? An eagerness to get things done? I don't know. But David here, says, truly my soul silently waits for God. And he follows it up with, from him comes my salvation. The word truly here can also be read as only. Only towards God, my soul is silent. Or maybe said a different way, for God alone, I patiently wait. Why is this important? Because David, who was facing yet another time of desperation, and when we think about going on, things going on in our lives today, maybe we are facing a time of desperation. Because despite all that's going on, all the affliction we face, all the bumps and bruises we're getting, all the opposition, we have to first root ourselves in our Heavenly Father. Why would we first cry out to Him in this type of way and then simply sit silently, patiently, waiting for Him? Why would we do something like that? So the word truly or only and surely or alone all the different translations of that word. Other verses of this psalm is a Hebrew adverb, which is why there are so many. But it's also translated verily or indeed. And the same type of word is used by Jesus when we hear him say things like truly, truly, or verily, verily, depending on the version you have. When Jesus says this, it should be taken as absolute it can't be disputed. It's unfallible, the things that Jesus says. It's his truth. And he has the only authority to be able to say it. David uses this word similarly, but to point back to God. That despite all that is happening, all the fear, all the hatred that we're facing, our life literally falling apart, all these things that God is still and God alone is the answer. 
It's as if David is saying that all that could he could have said doesn't need to be said. No words no longer matter. No words would do any good, wouldn't do any justice. Because the issue, when he presented it to God, rests with God. David's complete trust and confidence is in God alone. He doesn't trust where his mind or his heart might take him. David's silence is worship. Silence before God can be praise all by itself. Some say it can be the height of worship. In other words, to fall silent before God is awe at his presence and in submission to his will because God has all the authority. I wonder if in many ways this idea is a completely foreign concept to us. Because do we truly believe these things? Do we truly believe that God has all authority? Think about the contrast. The deafening sound of the world rushing in, the troubles and influences, the fears, all sides being pressed in, it's very loud. But then you compare that to the absolute silence sitting before the Lord. Oftentimes it's that silence that can be heard loudest of all. Because David faced with all these things, he found perfect peace in the presence of his mighty God. Even at the soul level, he says, my soul waits for God. We wait, some translations say hope. This waiting that we do isn't like a nervous waiting at the airport for a plane we hope will come and we hope we don't miss our next flight. We're waiting patiently with hopeful expectation because we know God has all authority. This is supernatural. This patience and restraint that we have is the result of God's grace and the strength and courage he gives us in this peace that we talk about that surpasses all understanding. Because David completes the sentence with, from him comes my salvation. Is there anything greater than God's salvation? When looking at our circumstances, as bad as they may be, I'm not going to be trying to make these things light because they're hard, they're difficult. We're faced with really horrible things. Seemingly impossible odds. I mean, turn on the news. <laughs> you watch five minutes and you see what I'm talking about. But those things can't compare to the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. They just don't compare. We may find temporary relief here, worldly ways of trying to make things go away, but God is eternal, and his ways are everlasting. In God alone, we put our trust. Lamentations 3, 24, and 26 says, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What does Psalm 46.10 say? Be still and know that I am God. 
When was the last time we did this? When was the last time we went to our prayer closet, kneeled humbly before our Savior, and we were just silent, knowing confidently that he is God? It's been a long time since I've, I was trying to think just now. I should, I should probably talk because I'm truly trying to think when the last time I, I did that. And it's, it's been a while. No, God alone is our hope. He alone is our salvation. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is our Lord and he's our Savior and he made the way for us. The world can't offer this. Other religions can't. Living the good life can't do this. Traditions, practices don't work. Only Jesus Christ, him alone, can do this. The saving work of Jesus Christ is already complete. And when we know him as Lord and Savior, when we've believed upon his name, we can truly be still, confidently knowing that he is our God, because our, our soul silently waits for him. Verse 2 says, He is only my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Again, we see the word only. He alone. What's being said here, this means that there's, there isn't a combination of things going on. David isn't saying, and nor should we, that we're using God or seeking God and this other thing. We're not seeking God and our riches. We're not relying on these other things. God alone is our rock. God alone is my rock. He is my defense. Now this word rock, we know when reading Psalms or reading about God and our Lord Jesus Christ, the word rock is mentioned a lot. It's used to describe a rock as having a strong foundation there's many references in the Bible for this. The rock is also mentioned as Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone that the builders rejected. The builders being the Jewish leaders and in fact became a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Isaiah 8.14 says, He will be a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the house of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. But David here is speaking about some of the physical characteristics of a rock. A rock is strong. Think about the waves in the ocean, how they crash upon the rocks. The waves crash, the rocks remain. A rock is hard to penetrate. You put on a suit of armor, an arrow can find any small opening and get us. Arrow can't go through a rock. It's heavy. Ever try to move a rock? They're heavy. And because of all these attributes, a rock makes a great defense for a very vulnerable person, like David, or us. And oftentimes we think of God as a rock or a fortress with the implication that he is our refuge. In fact, we'll read that. Set high up so the enemy can't reach him or penetrate him. 
And so there's no better place to be than sitting silently before God as he protects you and us from the enemy with no way for the enemy to reach us. Now we spent a little bit of time on these opening verses because I think it's important because we don't know why David is in trouble here. And I don't think it matters. Maybe that's why it's not mentioned. In some Psalms it says, as David was fleeing Absalom or as David was doing this, that, or the other. Here it doesn't say that. And I think the point is it doesn't matter what's going on. And I can't help but think when I think about these things and I read about these, there's, there's a lesson for us here. If your faith, if our faith and trust in the Lord was on this level, what a witness and testimony it would be to the people around us. Can you imagine? <coughs> And what kind of honor and glory would that give to God? People would see the application of this in our lives and see Christ walking with us. They would see what we're going through, but they would see our countenance. They would see the peace that we have, and they would know that Christ is walking with us. Maybe, if you think about these things, maybe we would be able to experience this experience this to the extent that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Book of Daniel says, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. This is in Daniel 3, 24 through 25. The king was astonished as he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, how did the king know that? Is that even possible anymore? With God, all things are possible. But do we have the faith to make them possible? Do we have a desire to know Christ like this, to be able to experience this? David continues, how long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you. Like a leaning wall or a tottering fence, the only consult to cast, the only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. We might be asking the same thing. How long is this pain going to continue? How long can the attacks keep coming? Surely this has to stop soon. But David here has words for his enemies. How long are you going to keep this up? He even warns them of the judgment to come. You shall be slain, all of you. When we're under attack from our enemies, do we try to share a warning to them? Or do we try to fight back? 
Now there's some debate as to who the verse says, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence applies. Some scholars believe that it applies to David because he's weak during this time and he needs the strength of the Lord. And without the Lord, he kind of teeters and totters. But other scholars claim that it applies to the men that pursue and attack David. Now, I'm not here to further debate or add anything new, but I tend to believe that it leans more towards explaining the position of the men that oppose David. As if saying that all they throw at David during this time, all they throw his way, it's vain, it's, it's useless. Spurgeon said in regard to this, boastful persecutors bulge and swell with pride, but they are only as a bulging wall ready to fall in a heap. They lean forward and seize their prey, but it is only as a tottering fence inclines to the earth upon which it will soon lie at length. See, it's futile for these people to keep trying because they will actually be completely destroyed in their attempt. Isn't this a true statement even for the enemy? The gates of hell will never prevail. The enemy will be destroyed for eternity. Jesus Christ already came, sin and death, on the cross. And at the end of this verse, we see Selah. Now we know that this is a break, it's a pause, maybe for musical direction, but it's also a moment to contemplate the things that we just heard, to kind of internalize them, to meditate on them. Jesus overcame sin and death. He was victorious, and by him alone we are saved. It's a time to reflect on his mercy and his grace, a time to sit silently before him and know that he is God. God encourages. Verses five through seven say, my soul waits silently on God alone. There's that word again. For my ex expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. The next three verses, verses five through seven, look really similar to the first couple of verses that we read. Why do you think that is? We know that we see things like this repeated. It's a confirmation of truth that's taking place. We're encouraged and built up by hearing God's word in this manner, by being able to hear his truth over and over again. We need the reminding. We need things repeated. We're prone to wander. But when we read this verse, things aren't exactly the same. And so let's see what's going on. Verse 1 says, Truly, my soul silently waits for God. Verse 5 says, My soul wait silently for God alone. It seems David has come to a place now 
where he moved from an absolute desperate plea to God of truly my soul silently waits for God to a place where he has calmed down a bit. He's a little more quiet confidence in God. My soul waits silently on God alone. As if he has had time to take a deep breath, know that he's safe in the hands of God, and he can say God alone. He reminds us that when we're in God's presence, we're protected. And often simply just sitting with him, before him, in silently or in prayer or reading the word, our confidence and closeness to the Lord grows. Spending time in worship, singing songs and hymns, we know that he is close. Even serving him in accordance with his will, we see how our love for him grows. And as Pastor Tim recently was saying, I think it was last Sunday when he said this, that when we take time out of our own issues and set those aside and pray for another brother or sister and to lift those intercessory prayers on their behalf, our closeness with God increases. The second part of that verse 5 and verse 1, from him comes my salvation. Verse 5 says, for my expectation is from him. We see the word salvation changed to expectation or hope in many translations. Think about again as this hopeful expectation of God's intervention here. Still the complete reliance on God and nothing from self or nothing from the world. And this is kind of how I think about this. If you think about a soldier in combat on a battlefield, and they're taking on enemy fire from several different positions. The team that you're with is a small team. They call in for some air support. There's a couple of aircraft flying above. But you have to wait. You have to wait for them to help clear away. And you're hoping, you're really hoping that they get there soon. You're hoping that they open a path that leads to safety. But at the same time that you're waiting for that support, and you're hoping that it comes soon, you're also at the same time looking for a different route, looking for where can I run? Can I dodge behind an alley, behind a car, behind a wall? You're also looking for another way out. But that's not how it is when our hope is in the Lord because there isn't another path. God is eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing, never changing. And when we have the Holy Spirit, we have the helper, the comforter, and our source for joy and peace. And it doesn't really matter what comes our way, he's still with us. We always have a hopeful expectation We know that he can't be defeated. And he accomplished all that we couldn't on the cross. He's always with us. So our level of this trust may falter. In fact, it does often. But he is always consistent. 
Our hope fails, but God doesn't. And remember, as we wait on the Lord, it doesn't mean that he has denied us or turned his back on us. We just wait with patience. Warren Wiersbe said this, times of waiting can be difficult if we don't depend wholly on the Lord. God's delays are not God's denials, but our impatience can be used by the devil to lead us on dangerous and destructive detours. Trust wholly in the Lord. Verse 2 Compared to verse 6, verse 2 says, He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Verse 6 is almost identical. He is only my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. Here we see David goes from, I will be, not be greatly moved, to I won't be moved at all. When our complete faith and trust is in the Lord, it is impossible for us to be moved. Surely the enemy can hinder, and our confidence isn't in the results of our faith, but in faith in God alone. In other words, <clears throat> the world can still pepper us with all sorts of things, but we no longer will make decisions based on fear. We won't change our minds because of some other influence. We won't be rattled because of the drowning sounds of the things around us. We'll continue our course, fighting the good fight, taking one step of faith at a time, not looking to the left or to the right, but keeping our eyes on Christ, because he is the author and finisher of our faith. Psalm 8, 16, 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Verse 7 and 8, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Again, we see that David is holding on to the truths that he has encouraged and declaring them to the people around him. He's telling the people around him, look, God is the only way of escape. He is the way to safety. With God, we don't have to be afraid. He is my refuge. He can be our refuge. If we want to have this type of assurance, we must know God personally. We have to be born again. This can't be manufactured by the things of the world. The world can't produce this. We can't buy it. We can't think it. You know, we can't wake up one day and identify as a strong and confident person instead of identifying as a male or a female and say, I, I'm not going to be called a male or a female. I'm going to be called courageous. Like, it doesn't work that way. The world likes to think it does, but it doesn't. Only by knowing Christ as our Lord and Savior do we have this blessed assurance. And then again, we see at the end of verse 8, another pause, another time to ponder the things of the Lord, to sit before him in worship. The last section, God rewards 
Verse 9, surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they were weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. David has used, or David and us, we really place our trust and our hope on men, on mankind. And we really put them on a high level a lot of times. And if you think about what I'm talking about, why are we afraid to share our faith? Why are we afraid to go and evangelize and share the good news with the people around us? Why are we afraid to serve? Why are we afraid to commit to God the way he has committed to us? Because we're afraid of mankind. We don't like to admit that, but we are. We don't want to seem stupid or old-fashioned or any other word that can be used to describe our feelings. Especially people that have power or influence. But what is man compared to God? What can man do compared to what God can? Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear the men, him, who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. The low and the high terms here are reference to all men, regardless of their position or level of power. And David explains that if we were to weigh all of these men on a scale, remember scales were used to determine value. He says that they're altogether lighter than vapor. The word vapor can also be translated as a puff of wind or a breath. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the word breath is translated as vanity. But the idea here is that in all the weight and clout that we give these people, that we give these men and women, all the respect that they get but they don't deserve, all the honor and everything else, if all of these men were weighed, it wouldn't even matter enough to even be a weight. It'd be a puff of wind, a breath. Because that's what we bring to the table. Absolutely nothing. So what are we afraid of? Verse 10 says, Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not see your heart, set your heart on them. David again continued to make this point here about mankind and what they can or can't do, the things they can obtain or not. We can't trust in the things of this world. We shouldn't set our hearts upon them. That means that we shouldn't even desire these things. He says, if you get rich, don't put your wealth on a pedestal because it doesn't deserve to be there. Only God deserves to be there. Don't put these things in place of God. Don't become arrogant because of our riches, the things that we've obtained, the people that we know. We shouldn't take pleasure in these things. Don't make room for these things by removing God from his rightful place. If we have to 
Stop doing certain things. Stop going to church. Stop serving. Stop spending time in the word with him in the morning and worship because our lives get too busy. There's something wrong. Our priorities are out of whack. Don't put God last. Verse 11 and 12 says, God has spoken once, twice, I have heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy. For you render to each one according to his work. Verse 11 is just, it means that something that David has heard again and again. And what David has heard is that power belongs to God. What we have heard in this psalm in many Psalms, in many parts of the Bible, of God's word, the power belongs to God. But not only power, but also mercy. Mercy belongs to God. Abraham Wright said this, the high heaven covereth as well tall mountains as small molehills, and mercy can cover all. The more desperate thy disease, the greater is the glory of thy physician, who hath perfectly cured thee. That's why Paul said he was the chief among the sinners. He understood his wretchedness, and he knew he didn't deserve the mercy of God. He didn't take it for granted. He didn't squander it. He didn't use it for sordid gain. He wasn't showing off, didn't think that he was better than anybody else. Quite the opposite. He understood what he was saved from. He understood how instead of doing the will of God, he was actually persecuting God. Paul knew that he was undeserving of God's mercy, but it was by his grace that we are saved. It's hard for me to share my testimony. Some of you have heard, because most of my testimony, I wasn't able to finish it the last time I gave it. It's been a few years. Because as you all know, when you're telling your testimony and the ladies during the Young at Heart do a wonderful job of, I guess it's the Holy Spirit keeping everything together. But it's tough because you, you think about in telling the testimony from God, you have to think about the things that you used to do, the person that you used to be before salvation. And truly, I was such a wretched man, still am, but I'm saved by his grace, that it literally brings me to tears when I think about all he has done for me. Because I knew what I was doing. I knew what I was thinking. I have a lot we in this room watching online have a lot to be thankful for. So mercy belongs to God. He says, for you render to each one according to his work. Now this part of the verse should make us take pause. Uh-oh, we're rendered according to our work. We normally think about this verse being one that describes God's judgment, but it also describes his mercy. Colossians 3, 23 and 24 says, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward 
in the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he, comes, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So God will render to each one according to his work. Do we serve the Lord? There is a reward for those that seek and serve him. This doesn't mean that our faith is based on works. That's not what I'm saying here. Please don't misunderstand me. We know that's not true. But David is simply saying that for those who seek after riches, you have your reward. But for those who trust in the Lord, we receive something far beyond this world can offer. You know, we don't take anything, this has been so, said so many times, it's almost cliche at this point, but we don't take anything with us when we are called home. All the material possessions that we've accumulated, the houses, the cars, the position, the status, <laughs> none of that matters. Our fancy trips, our money, and you know, none of these things are sinful necessarily, but they become a sin when we put these things first. And really, how we accumulate these things can also be sinful. We have to be careful. Because there's a lot of people out there that have a lot of these things that serve the Lord in a wonderful way. And with this, these things, with all these things, they don't protect us. They don't define us. They don't bring us closer to God. Our works don't save us. Only putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ does. His mercy and his grace are freely given, but it, it's a reward that is eternal. And truly, it's a reward that he had to pay the price. It's a free gift to us, but it wasn't freely given. This reward is not something that we can strive to get. It's not bought at our price, but it was bought at a price. And it's something that we can never pay back. Put God first because he deserves it. We're going to close tonight. I don't know what people here are facing. I've had conversations with some, those online as well. But I don't know everything that everybody's facing. I don't know what kind of curveball was thrown at you. Maybe even today. I don't know what kind of hand you've been dealt. But I, knew, I do know that there's an answer for all of this. And it covers all these things. And his name is Jesus Christ. And we got to read his word tonight. I pray that as we went through this psalm, it was an encouragement to you. Because we see time and time again that David, when faced with impossible odds, he doesn't dwell on those things. He doesn't ask for a pity party, the oh, woe is me routine. He puts God first. And I pray that we do the same. Put our focus and attention on him 
and his will in our lives. Now, putting God first doesn't mean that we ignore our problems or act like they don't exist. It doesn't mean that we put up a false front of self-consciousness or self-righteousness or confidence and channel our inner strength. I'm not saying that. We don't have any inner strength. It simply means that God is deserving of our praise despite what we're faced with. It doesn't matter what our situation is. God still deserves everything. He deserves our obedience. He's not moved by our circumstances. And because he's not moved, we aren't either. We shouldn't be. Because he provides the rest and the protection and the hope and peace and joy. He provides a way to walk in faith through these things because he walks with us. And these things would like to destroy us. But he gives us the ability to be victorious in these things. Let's close with this one verse, 2 Samuel 22, 31-32. This is the Jewish translation. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of Adonai has been tested by fire. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God but Adonai? And who is a rock but our God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your word. We thank you for always being there for us, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, when we try to do things by ourselves. Forgive us when we forget Lord, that you were there waiting for us to cry out. Lord, that you would and do protect us. That nobody can move us out of your hand. Lord, forgive us where we fall short in these areas. But thank you, Lord, that we have you to turn to through everything. You don't leave us. You don't forsake us. You walk through the fire with us. And so, Lord, we just are so thankful that we can be here to hear these, this encouragement. We thank you for David and just the example that he is, continues to be, Lord. Not a perfect man by any stretch, Lord, but one that is able to show us just a little bit of how it is that we should act and behave, Lord, in these situations. So thank you for all that you do in us and through us and for us. Thank you, Lord, especially for who you are. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.